successful organizations are eliminating learning, which is uh, should be a shocking thing for people to hear. But if you kind of think about our everyday lives, our grandparents perhaps knew, grandparents' grandparents knew how to build a house or whatever or do any number of things. Certainly my grandmother had an allotment and would grow food and whatever. And then it became going to the supermarket. And now we just yell at Alexa and the food magically appears. So we are systematically eliminating learning. And that's because learning stands in the way of performance. So if you're an organization, you've got to hire very skilled people to do jobs. Your wage bill goes up. It's going to be harder to resource those roles in future because everything's changing. You're going to be spending more and more of your money on training. So if you can build resources that enable anybody to perform to a high degree of capability, then you can retain your competitiveness within the market. Hello and welcome to another episode of Learning Rewired, where leaders are challenged to rethink what, how and why they and their organizations learn. This is, in fact, our first episode recorded remotely and not in our Financial Times studios. Yet, as always, Learning Rewired is brought to you by Headspring as part of Headspring's commitment to fostering communities of continuous learning. I'm your host, Evan Rees. The multi-systems crises catalyzed by COVID-19 have challenged business, society, the world economy, and many of our pre-established beliefs. In these difficult times, however, we have found multiple opportunities to learn and develop. But what separates organizations and individuals that learn effectively from those that don't? What potential gains can be harnessed by taking a genuine learning approach to experience? And what role do leaders play in this evolution? Answering these and other tough questions, I'm joined today by Nick Shackleton-Jones, iconoclast, free-thinking learning expert, HR director of learning at Deloitte UK, and author of How People Learn. Nick, welcome to Learning Rewired. How are you today? Yeah, not too bad. How are you? Yeah, well, so I'd like to begin with a joke, actually. Always a good place to begin. Well, it depends on the joke, Nick. <laughs> no, no, I'm excited. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you a minute to make up your mind. But there's a, a man on his way home from work one evening, and he's walking along the pavement, and he comes across another fellow on his hands and knees, frantically searching for something on the pavement. So uh, the man stops and, and looks at him. At first, he's a bit bewildered, but then the man is obviously quite frantic. So he says, well, look, you know, can, can I help you? What's happened? How can I help? So the man on his hands and knees says, look, I've lost my watch. It was my grandfather's watch. It was an heirloom in my family. And just beside myself, I, I can't lose this watch. So the man says, well, of course, I'll get down on my hands and knees and help you. So very soon there were two of them searching frantically around in the, in the streetlight looking for this watch. And eventually it occurs to the second man to ask, well, where did you last see the watch? Where did you lose it? So the first man kind of randomly points off into the darkness and said, oh, over there somewhere. So the man says, well, well why are we looking here? And the first <laughs> man says, well, this is where the light is. And yeah. And in reading your fantastic book, How People Learn, uh, that, that joke came to me as quite a strong analogy as to how a lot of interventions in organizations happen, but especially learning interventions, an idea of we're going to work here and we're going to look here because this is where we're shining the light, mm-hmm. when that might not necessarily be the right place to start with learning. Do you have any uh, initial ideas on, 
on the joke. First of all, <laughs> the, I love, I love and, the joke. Yeah. Do, you think, do you think it's a fair representation of perhaps a misightedness um, in, in where we start with learning in organizations? I think it's a good joke. And I also think it's a good, a really good analogy. So I might even steal it. Um, because I, I think really what's going on there is the, the metaphor with learning is, well, you know, this is not the kind of thing that would actually fix performance or engagement, to which the playback is, yeah, but this is the kind of thing that we know how to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I have a word that I use to describe that kind of activity, which everybody kind of knows how to do and goes along with, but doesn't actually make any difference. And that's bureaucracy. And our world feels with bureaucracy. You might think, well, why would you go along with a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't actually make a difference? And the answer is, well, because people just like to know that they're kind of fitting in and that there's a set of expectations that they're conforming to. And actually, it just creates jobs. You know, you can mm -hmm. create jobs out of everything, aromatherapy, if you like. Um, mm -hmm. So, the things that we do in the world don't have to interface, in a sense, with reality. They can become separated. I think that's what's happened with education and L&D. It's become separated from any real kind of impact. Um, mm -hmm. And so we've ended up, as you say, searching where the light is instead of where we're actually going to find something. Mm -hmm. I mean, as you're speaking there, it's quite easy to put oneself in that position. Anyone who's worked in a large organization has seen this in action a lot, that that sense in the back of your mind that this might not be the optimal way to do something. But right now, this feels much safer, easier. Perhaps you don't want to rock the boat. Perhaps the fear of failure is too strong. Perhaps you're just being outright told that any idea other than this is the wrong one. And that has a very powerful state experience, some kind of effective response. And I mean, in, in your book, How People Learn, this comes up as a, as a strong interpretation of learning itself, the, uh, mm. the effective context model. Could you talk me through a little bit about that, about how that same kind of human response to a situation impacts learning itself? Yeah, I can talk through, i am become reluctant to talk through it at an abstract level. So let's start with something very real, which is when people look back on their lives and you ask them about key points of learning, they will almost invariably reflect that those have been things where there's been some strong, you know, emotional element to it. So, for example, moving to another country uh, or moving jobs or when something went really badly wrong for themselves or, or someone around them. Or it can be something as small as a comment. It doesn't have to be some grand emotional thing. People can be really hurt. And I talk to people and, and I have experienced somebody's been hurt by a single comment that impacted them, cut them to the core. Um, and so at an intuitive level, we sort of get that the effective impact, the emotional impact of things is often what's driving our learning. The effective context model is a way of bringing together lots of disparate bits of learning theory. So as a psychology lecturer, I was aware of various bits of sort of learning theory. And the problem was that they all worked for different bits. So you could have um, a constructivist kind of theory or Vygotsky or um, you could have classical conditioning, but you didn't have a single theory which explained what was really going on. And so the effective context is an attempt to provide that. And what it basically says in answer to your question is that we don't remember anything what we actually encode is our reactions to things. So as you and any other creature, whether that's a sea slug or a rat or a, or a human being, as they move through the world, what happens is that different experiences cause a reaction. So there might be a positive reaction, might be a negative reaction, and you encode those reactions 
just those reactions. And you can use those reactions then to reconstruct what happened to you. And before I kind of finish there, because it sounds like an absolutely crazy idea, I appreciate. The beauty of it is that your reactions to things are malleable. So you start Mm. out like any other creature with a reaction to pain. And I know that I can cause you to learn by using pain. And that's what classical conditioning often is about, is about kind of reward and punishment. So I know that by virtue of the fact that we are biological creatures, there are certain reactions that we share. So electric shocks are the commonly used ones. But as human beings, our reactions become very sophisticated. So you might have a reaction, and the example I use is to architecture. I might have a reaction to, you know, uh, plants or something completely different, paintings, um, art, And when we go on a shared experience, you react to one set of things and I react to another. I notice, for example, every day people around me who react to clothing. Did you see what so-and-so was wearing and so on? I seem to be sort of clothing blind. You know, unless somebody were kind of stark naked, I probably wouldn't have a strong reaction to what somebody was wearing. And so this means that you and I can have the same experience on one level of description, but we encode very different things because we react to different things. So In conclusion, the effective context model is a way of understanding what it is that people are storing and how it is that they're storing across a wide range of circumstances, whether that's kind of formal education or just what's happening in their lives. And so Mm -hmm. I'll stop there. So when I originally read this, I did think it was a radical idea. And the more that you expounded on it, the less radical and more kind of sensible it seemed. I mean, this is really the word that kept coming up for me was was human. This just seemed it seemed like such a simple, elementally human way of looking at learning, which is that the degree to which a human being's experience of a learning event is influenced to some level, to a positive or a negative degree, is going to impact how deeply and how well that is imprinted or encoded. And it's not really about the content, is it? It's about the experience itself. Or let me just adapt that perhaps it's not as much about the content as it is about the experience itself. Yes, because, and I guess... You may have this experience if you have children. I guess many of the people listening to this will have this experience. They ask their kids at the end of the day, how was school? And the kids say, boring. And boring is a shorthand human way of saying, I had no particular reaction to anything there. If you have a meeting that is boring, what that means is there was nothing that you reacted strongly to in that meeting. If there was, you would have remembered it. And that would be your response to the question, what happened during that meeting? You would say, well, you wouldn't believe it. Halfway through the meeting, this person came sort of storming into the room and said, you know, you're in my room and there was this big argument that broke out. And that may not have been pertinent to the subject of the meeting, but it was something that you reacted to. And that will be what you encode and that will be what you remember. And I guess it almost seems obvious to me, and I realize that there's a risk here, when you've been thinking about something long enough, it seems obvious to you, even though it seems crazy to other people, but that we encode the stuff that matters. We remember the stuff that matters to us. And the problem that you have with learning is that different stuff will matter to different people in a room. Mm -hmm. So it's a terrible idea to just get up and, and talk about the stuff that matters to you and completely disregard the stuff that matters to people in the room. There's only one caveat to that, really, which is that if you can be confident that the same things matter to everybody in the room, that format can work. So for example, if you know, if somebody's a new starter to an organization, you'll find pretty much every new starter wants to fit in. Mm-hmm. You know, people just care about fitting in. Mm-hmm. And so you can get up in front of a group of new starters and talk about 
fitting in and how to do that and everybody will pay attention mm. so it, it's a fundamental dynamic in the way that we design learning and i'll just say you might think well this is just complete common sense i think that why aren't we doing this and the answer is because we're doing education we're looking under the lamp and education toxifies all of these conversations and the reason we're not doing the common sense thing is we've all grown up with this model of education where everybody sits down, shuts up, takes notes, remembers facts, and somebody talks about what matters to them, and we just all kind of somehow digest that. And that's what we've absorbed into our organizations. It's really no more complicated than that. Organizations are just doing L&D on an educational model. Mm. Yet within that conversation, there is always something new, always something, you know, in inverted commas, quite revolutionary, normally around technology. This is going to change L&D. First, we had uh, first big technological step was into e-learning, and then, then we had all these kind of bite-sized uh, learning and delivered in different ways. And it's all about the channels of delivery, et cetera, mm. et cetera. But, but what I'm hearing you say is that that doesn't really matter. That, you know, that we're talking about they are vehicles of replicating the same system uh, with the same approach. The approach itself is not genuinely shifting. Yeah, I'm just going to agree with you. So the, the, the basic model that you've described is you take is content-centric rather than context-centric. Mm. It doesn't start with, well, what, what are the problems that the people in this room are trying to face and how do we address those? Because the problems are the things they care about, right? Mm. Um, it starts instead with, how do we get this content into people's heads? And it's horrifying to me that the history of L&D has been this history of wizard wheezes for stuffing content somehow into people's heads. Everything from we'll beat them, like literally, you know, some of us even on this podcast may remember that far back when the way to get content into people's heads was to, you know, if they didn't remember it, you know, you, you whip them. Some organizations looked at electric shocks, you know, as a way of doing that. And then there's the fear of the test, which repeated, replaced kind of beatings and electrification as, you know, well, we're going to scare the life out of you with a test, you know, mm. and everybody gets very anxious about the test and there's some dire consequence if, if you don't pass them. But it's all been about how do we force feed content into people's heads rather than saying, you know, what matters to them? Because that's what they're going to remember. Mm-hmm. So what matters to me varies from moment to moment, right? Perhaps not moment to moment, but what matters to me is quite fluid. And also what matters to me in one situation, even if the situation itself is repeated, may vary very significantly according to my own emotional state, for example. Mm-hmm. So how do we start discerning what matters if people aren't even really that conscious most of the time about what matters to them? Yeah, well, these are lovely leading questions. Um, so the answer is you talk to them. <laughs> you talk to Somebody, them. Yeah, no. That's a crazy, radical <laughs> idea. You, yeah. Madness. Yeah. So we do this process, user-centered design, you can dress up in fancy language, but basically understanding what matters. I mean, wouldn't school be completely different if every teacher of every child knew what the, you know, the top 20 things are that matter? And of course, your point is a good one, which is different things matter in different contexts. And the example that, you know, that I quite like to use is, I, I did this film thing with a scorpion and I wasn't really remotely interested in, in scorpions until the point in which, you know, I had somebody put one on me. And then I realized that, you know, you don't really care about different types of scorpion and how poisonous they are until, you know, you've, you've been bitten by one. And then all of a sudden it matters deeply to you. And so, yeah, the different things are going to matter in different contexts. There would be context, though, that you can identify um, and 
I guess some of the people listening to this, why don't you get to point and talk about what the organizational relevance is? And, and so there'll be context like when you're joining an organization that I've mentioned or typically when you're stepping up into a role for the first time. So when you're a leader for the first time or when you're doing some kind of technical role for the first time where we can say, look, in that context, we can be like 80% sure that these are the things that you're going to be worried about. And then you can build resources and content for people and they will absorb them. I'll give you a simple example in case it sounds a bit abstract. So as a leader, you are worried about screwing up. Most leaders, they won't necessarily articulate it in an explicit way, but you can talk to them and it will come up. They're worried about making a fool of themselves, how they're going to come across to their colleagues and to their boss. So you can do a piece where you say, well, here are the top 20 mistakes that new leaders make and you can put that on a checklist and they will absorb that no problem at all it will be a super popular resource to give to new leaders um, i know because we, you know we've done this and mm-hmm. um, all you needed to do is find out what they care about and provide the content that matches their their care or their concern mm-hmm. so i mean i think you're speaking beautifully there about uh, i suppose a very fairly general context with with a high degree of predictability though so um, yeah having looked at the context the repetition of the same situation you see the patterns, you understand the shared needs of individuals who go through that process. What about the space where things become really individual and really specific? So I hear you you say, mm. quite simply, you speak to people, but what does it actually look like functionally? And what are we listening for when we're trying to design that kind of learning? Because you know, limited resources, which are often found in L&D departments and organizations, um, people turn around and go, well, <laughs> how on earth are we going to do all of that? How are we going to develop specifically tailored learning that responds to people's individual cares and interests at any specific time. It sounds overwhelming. Yeah, it's it's pretty tough to do, but you can do it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to set a bit of groundwork first. So there are two kinds of things that you can do in learning. And so we don't get confused in what I'm going to say. I'm just going to set them out. So sometimes as an organization, it's legitimate to want people to care about something different like GDPR or you know diversity that they don't currently care about. And so there's a whole conversation on the left about how do you change what people care about, um, which I'm not talking about. And then there's what you've just described, which is, well, when you look at people, there'll be some cares that they share. So more or less, everybody wants to look good. You know, this is just the kind of creatures that we are. So you can be pretty confident that if you produce a guide to looking good in our organization, that you know, the people will track it down and use it. But then they start to diversify and differentiate. So this is where Google is a good example. So the answer is, Google doesn't know what you care about, but you can search for the thing that you care about in that context, and everything is readily accessible. So a resource model lends itself to that kind of application where, okay, so you're not sure what all your people care about. You want to personalize learning. A great way to do that is to actually give them access to a whole range of things that I guess are in that ecology of things that they might care about. And then you can kind of see and track where they go what they do, and it will be personalized. And over time, patterns will build up in much the way that kind of Google starts to see those patterns. And then on the back of that, you can build recommendations. But that begs the question is like, how are you going to build that ecosystem of the stuff that people care about? How does Google build that ecosystem? Well, obviously, it's a massive scale. 
But what you can do in an organization is you can take representative samples. It's what you would call market segmentation, I guess, if you're in a digital background. You make representative samples of different kinds of people in the organization, different cultures, different roles, and you can start to catalog. Well, you know, here are the top 20 cares for somebody who's new in a contact center. Here's the top 20 concerns for somebody in customer service role. Here's the top 20 concerns for somebody who's a leader. And then you start to build up you know, a significant body of resources that people can access. And their experience then is quite personalized. So, you know, right here, right now, I've got this problem. This is the just-in-time learning kind of thing. And I can access the resource that's going to help me with that. So that goes some way towards answering your question, I hope. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One one of the words that that came up there um, a number of times was the word resource. Mm -hmm. So before I actually read anything by you um, or spoke to you or ever listened to anything by you or... The phrase that I had associated to you was, was uh, resources, not courses. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it stuck in my mind because it was interesting and it was catchy and also quite provocative. So yeah. looking into it more, it made so much sense to me. And, and here I'm talking about what's most helpful to a person at a point in need uh, when they're trying to solve a problem, for example, or might not be a piece of information or content. It might be the tool or the means to solve the problem that they have right then and there. So that could be, I'm on a street in a new city and I need to suddenly get from point A to point B and expectedly I need to change my direction. I need a way to do that. You know, mm. I might not need to memorize the map of that city. What I actually just need is Google Maps, for example. What was an interesting point that you raised in your book was basically this question of utility versus learning. Yeah. So often what's actually happening in that situation is when a resource, is, perhaps it's when a resource is especially good and especially useful, it actually replaces the need to learn as it were, because one becomes reliant on the resources. And the question that came up for me is, you know, one hears a lot these days about learning organizations. Um, A lot of organizations now call themselves learning organizations. And to a degree, it's become, in my view, quite fashionable Mm. to become a learning organization. It's an incredibly important and powerful thing to aim for, though. But do companies that want to be learning organizations really want to be learning organizations? Or do they, in, in effect, actually want to be resource organizations? <laughs> and not that that's a bad thing, um, but is that actually yeah. what they're aiming for? That's great. There's three things going on there. It's, it's I think it's so interesting as a question. So three things. So the first thing is going on is at face value. When they say learning organizations, what they mean is they want to get their completion rates up. In other words, they want to force feed people more content. And so uh, quite often, when you probe this a little bit, what they really mean is we just want people to use the stuff on our LMS more. (laughs) Well, that's a a kind of sucky agenda. It basically, all all that has to do with is justifying your existence as an L&D person. So let's just kind of set that aside for the moment because there are ways you can do that. You can give people electric shocks. Oh, oh, we're not allowed to do that. So instead, we'll just do tests. And I've done that. I won an award for it. And it's a horrible thing to look back on because really, we just did it with force-feeding people with tests and then we got lots of completions and we're now suddenly we're a learning organization. So you can see how how awful that is as an agenda. Then there's the second sense in which every organization is by default a learning organization. So people are joining organizations and they will be learning from the people around them. I see it every day. I go into Starbucks, there's some trainee, and I'm looking at them thinking, well, how are you learning? And typically it's they're learning from the person standing next to them. They hear the problem and the person is there to help them and they talk them through it. 
So the question then is, is it kind of like a healthy learning organization where people aren't afraid to fail and afraid to ask for help or whatever? Or is it you know, a, an unhealthy learning organization where you know, people are horrified of making a mistake? And there you can start to see, well, you know, that then starts to get kind of interesting because if you consider that every organization has a sort of learning process happening, you can move on to the third sense of learning organization, which is how are you actually going to use things like resources to build this kind of ecosystem where people can learn at the point of need. And the really fascinating thing about that is, you alluded to at the beginning of this question, that successful organizations are eliminating learning, which is should be a shocking thing for people to hear. But if you kind of think about our everyday lives, our grandparents perhaps knew, grandparents' grandparents knew how to build a house or whatever or do any number of things. Certainly my grandmother had an allotment and would grow food and whatever. And then it became going to the supermarket and now we just yell at Alexa and the food magically appears. We are in every aspect of our lives. And the same is true of driving, if you think about it. I used to know mm-hmm. when I was a younger man how to basically fix a car. And now I just jump in and, and soon I'll be yelling a postcode at a device and it will just drive me there. So we are systematically eliminating learning. And that's because because learning stands in the way of performance. So if you're an organization, you've got to hire very skilled people to do jobs. Your wage bill goes up. It's going to be harder to resource those roles in future because everything's changing. You're going to be spending more and more of your money on training. So if you can build resources that enable anybody to perform to a high degree of capability, then you can retain your competitiveness within the market. And if that sounds like a pipe dream, just think about Uber and what we did with taxi driving, right? So as a taxi driver in London, you used to have to know all of the routes in London. And then we eradicated that learning need by putting GPS in a vehicle. And that opened the way for an organization like Uber to compete. So the paradox of it is that, in fact, organizations should be looking wherever possible to eliminate learning by building resources and performance guidance systems that will enable anybody of a low level of capability to perform seamlessly. So I'll just finish that by saying there's become a sort of fixation on learning organizations as we face into the future, whereas in fact, I think something like the opposite is the case. Mm-hmm. Do you mean that perhaps the aspirational objective to become an organization that is optimally efficient in terms of performance and resource allocation, in terms of, let's call it learning, but actually just in time resource allocation? Is that where organizations are moving to, or do you think um, that's what organizations are hoping to become? I think they exist at different points on that spectrum. So I think there are organizations for whom learning organization basically just means we want to see more consumption of learning content. And I think you're in a difficult place uh, if that's how you perceive learning organization. And then I think there's more Mm -hmm. enlightened organizations who see learning organization as somewhere on the right hand of that spectrum, which is about production and sharing of knowledge within the free flow, if you like, of learning within the organization where people are unafraid to learn. Um, And that, I think, is a more complex thing to achieve. I don't think there's a single thing that will do that. I don't think an LMS will do that. I don't think an LXP will do that. I think that's a culture change. I think as an example, it means the way that leaders show up. Do they show up as learners? The way that people are encouraged, are people recognized for their efforts, kind of sharing what they know? And people are afraid to fail, for example, or are they they confident to kind of try things out? So I think there are many levers you have to pull to reach Mm. the kind of learning organization that people are alluding to on the the right-hand side. Yeah. You mentioned there, um, uh, well, you you raised the question, are leaders showing up as learners? Mm. 
From your point of view, what does it look like for a leader to show up as a learner? <laughs> well, so we, at the moment, I've been doing a lot of design around leadership programs. And there's this kind of thing that organizations, some of them have explicitly as we want our leaders um, to be developers of people is, is the kind mm -hmm. of jargon. And the problem is that that gets translated into the teacher-student model. Mm -hmm. So the leader basically has to sit down and, and tell people, you know, we're going to work on your development plan and so on. And the problem is that it's, it's somewhat counterproductive because people tend to look to their leaders as examples. So if you want a leader who is promoting the learning organization, then they have to be talking about the learning that they are doing and modeling those behaviors on a daily basis. So as a simple example, leaders starting meetings with a learning moment. So talking about making that part of the everyday, I'm going to talk about what I as a leader learned, you know, what, what did you as a team learn? And really making that part of the conversations that they're having, not as part of a kind of a formalized process that people are subjected to in the way mm. that they'll recognize from school. So, yeah, I think it's more complicated, I think, to progress a learning organization than, than perhaps people imagine. Yeah, <laughs> the, uh, the idea of a uh, leader as a learner um, is a fascinating one to me because when I was originally thinking about this, looking in the context of effective learning and that we learn in those uh, situations when something matters to us and, and something cares to us, I mean, it, it occurred to me that there are, I wouldn't say, an insignificant number of people who are in leadership positions who don't necessarily care about being a leader. And I don't mean that in a harsh, as harshly judgmental as it sounds. I mean, just the hierarchical structure of, of many modern organizations means that you tend to rise up the ranks due to solid performance in many different metrics. And that puts you in a position of authority, but also leadership. And those two things aren't the same thing. But many people in a position of authority are now being asked to lead. And that might not actually be something that particularly matters to them um, at that particular point in their career. And mm -hmm. I've got a lot of space and, and tolerance for that. I don't think people can just be required to want to be a leader because it's a very challenging thing to do if you're going to do it well and with intent. But if we extrapolate the same approach to learning all the way up there and apply it to leaders as well, surely for leaders to learn how to do this well, we need to be able to understand what matters to them as well. And uh, I think the inversion of what you're speaking about is often there's this assumption of leaders that uh, they want to be where they are with everything that comes with it, and they want to lead people well, and, and perhaps that's not always the case. Do you think that's a fair question to ask? There are so many interesting things in what you say, and it's a brilliant question to ask. I think I'm going to go back to the beginning of what you said. I think you said something like leaders are where they are because of performance against multiple metrics. I don't even believe that's true. I think it's like school prefects. I think we know how you, at school, right? It's like if you're a, you know compliant and hardworking, you get made a prefect and then you're an example for the people. And I think in many organizations, leadership is no more complicated than that. I mean, we dream that there's loads of metrics, but I've sat in big organizations looking at, you know, the talent planning process. And in fact, it typically is, well, you know, so-and-so is really hardworking and, you know, they do what they're told, you know, let's, let's make them a leader. And quite often, to answer your second part of your question, that's kind of why they want to be a leader because it's advancement and they've grown up in a system where being a prefect 
that's what you want, you know, because mm. we hold prefects in, in higher esteem. So why wouldn't you want to be a leader? And it wasn't until my time at BP that I had a real car crash of a conversation where we'd identified um, this particular person as, as very talented. I sat down with her and I said, I think you have leadership potential. And she said, I'm not interested. And it took me several attempts for me to realize that my era where everyone was trying to climb the ladder was vanishing where not everybody wants to be a leader for the sake of being a leader so i think mm. you're right the motivation quite often for leadership is advancement and we hear this reflected in the groups that we run with leaders is they feel initially very privileged to be a leader and they feel you know they're respected and this is super important to them but then all of a sudden they struggle with all their quote people stuff and you, you more or less have to say well hang on that that's the job Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, I, I think I could be a leader fine if it wasn't for all this, you know, people stuff. Mm-hmm. And so there's a complete mismatch. And yeah, often it's the wrong people who are being placed into leadership positions because of that set of expectations. Yeah, um, it's a great, one of my favorite quotes, if I could just read it to you from your book very quickly, a paragraph. We are curiously elaborate creatures. We start out like many mammals, caring about pain, food, sex, status, family, and fairness. And we end up caring about recycling plastic. Learning is the name we give to this shaping of our concerns. Education might describe the intentional shaping of concerns where it's not busy trying to get people to memorize facts. Mm. So what, what I love about that, um, apart from the joke about caring about recycling plastic, was, was there's this real sense that learning is almost an evolutionary imperative, that we are constantly learning in relation to conscious or unconscious environments or situations that matter to us. And it's either trying to as you were saying earlier, um, you know, we're either moving away from pain or moving towards reward. And in that process, we're constantly learning. So if it is a natural imperative for us to learn, is it also a natural imperative for us to resist? Because what you were speaking about there with, with those leaders, as an example, this is tough stuff. Um, learning, genuine learning, can be really challenging sometimes. And that's when you find all sorts of resistance coming up to that sort of change that's required. Is, is that partly not what's going on in, in organizations and especially the L&D departments? The real challenge of the work is getting people to overcome that natural resistance to what well, is actually something that they care about, but it's the, perhaps the fear of the pain of the learning that is holding them back. Mm. I like very much that you're asking these deeper philosophical questions, and I think it illustrates something uh, at a meta level, which is what I like about it is that these are shared concerns between you and I. But equally, I reflect that, well, I don't know if everybody else are, are, you know, listening to this is equally concerned. And so the reflection there is that's why audience centricity comes in. Because if you and I go off on a philosophical tangent, then people then think, well, this is really boring. And they kind of switch off. And so even in this conversation we're having now, which I love, that tension exists. So yeah. I'll answer your question. You're absolutely right. So what is that relationship? And why does that dynamic play out? So if you can think about a sea slug moving around in some kind of primordial soup, learning plays a critical role because it means they can steer from horrible experiences. Um, you know, they can recognize bad places to be and avoid them. And this, you know, internalization of the external environment via reaction is what's taking place. So you move around the world, you go somewhere that was really horrible, like a, a coffee shop, you really didn't like it there. And as a consequence, just like the sea slug, you can internalize that reaction and know, well, I'm not going to go back there again. So this is homeostasis. People like Damasio describe this as homeostasis. And what we're trying to do basically is protect our internal environment so that at any given point of the day, I am cozy, <laughs> well-fed, happy, you know, uh, surrounded with the, the right kind of people. And this is what I'm trying to do, just like the sea slug. So you say, well, 
So what's the deal there? Well, the deal is that learning is cognitively costly. And human beings have been uniquely, I think, capable of a secondary thing, which is you restructure your environment, right? So one way to um, actually ensure that I'm cozy all year round is to migrate. So I can learn that it gets cold at this you know, latitude a certain time of year, so I can move somewhere else. Or I can build a house. And that's super cool because then I don't have to learn anything. I can externalize it. And what people, I think they really need to realize is we're doing this to a horrendous, horrific degree. We're becoming these incredibly fragile creatures mm. who need to learn next to nothing because we have externalized all of those kind of homeostatic mechanisms. So I, you know, I have a thermostat in my house that keeps me warm as a primitive example. And I now have an AI assistant that, you know, will prompt me and tell me what I need to do at various points. And this is what's happening within organizations is that learning is cognitively costly. We avoid it. People like Piaget talked about equilibrium as, as our target state where we don't have to learn anything else. And so quite often moving people, getting them to learn is something which requires challenge and um, we need to challenge them in new ways and push them and that's not always going to be a pleasant experience so by way of connection back to how you evaluate learning probably the worst way you could do that at the end of a course would be to say was that a good experience because the chances are if it was a great experience no, no learning was happening <laughs> uh, that's a fantastic point mm. So, I mean, the, the reason I ask you to go into this, this kind of place, perhaps a little bit more philosophical, is looking at all of this from the perspective of, of leaders in really this incredibly complex time and, and having to balance all these perspectives in an engaged and productive manner. So managing themselves as well as um, you know, the teams that they, they're, they're in, in effect managing in part of their role. What kind of skills are leaders really required to have that most people in the organization are not necessarily required to have? Or... That what skills are they required to have to a high degree? So am I hearing, I mean, in a system where, where memory and learning is based on effective experience, is an understanding of the self, of interpersonal relationship, all these things that we kind of lump under emotional intelligence these days, is that more relevant now? I mean, are these, is this a primary skill that you need to have be as a, to be a successful leader if you already want to understand how it is that people learn and how to get people to learn successfully for their own benefit and for the benefit of them. Yeah, so this is a deeply troubling question for many organizations and it touches back on something that you mentioned earlier around the word of leadership and people's understanding of it. And I think you'll probably be familiar with the shift away from what we thought of as management, which was much more kind of directive, much more top-down towards leadership, which is much more about kind of enabling people. And I think if I can take you back to that analogy with the school prefect, there was a time when, you know, I think leadership was thought of as just you were empowered to set the rules, tell people what to do, and, you know, set an example. And why is that perception eroding? Well, I think there's an awareness that in a very static sort of market model, you can have a militaristic machine. You can have a hierarchy, which is very top-down. It is ordering people about very directive, don't need people skills, just tell people what to do. And that works because things aren't changing. But in a model where strategically you start to think about, we want 
things like agility, which organizations talk about, or transformation, or we want innovation, or we want people to feel empowered, or we want people to be able to be authentic and express themselves at work. That role starts to look increasingly suspect in its old sense. And so you're absolutely touching on the consensus, which is it's shifting, and we know this from talking to different organizations, towards the leader is the enabler of people and somebody with a different skill set, somebody who understands coaching, who knows how to translate a vision and make it meaningful in terms of what people care about, who understands the diversity of people in the team and what and how to actually build a team where you've got multiple perspectives, who can run a better decision-making process. And in case, look, this sounds all maybe all a bit airy-fairy, it was a really big issue for BP because 85% of safety incidents are down to people problems. And mm-hmm. so there's a massive impact if you cannot have people in your team speaking up and so on. But here's the kicker. We don't know is the answer to your question. And, and this is what I hate about, I guess, maybe hate's a strong word, but really bugs me about the industry is this may be the consensus. And, and certainly it sounds plausible on this call. Maybe it sounds plausible to you, to me, but there's precious little data. The vast majority of organizations are not substantially tracking any real metrics around leadership. What, what do they produce? What do they do? You know, what's the output? Is it engagement? Is it performance? Mm. So probably what you've got currently is a situation where you've got a normal distribution of leaders. You've just more or less kind of picked them, as I say, because they're hardworking and compliant. Some of them will be damaging engagement and performance, and some of them may be lifting it. And frankly, you don't know, because the only way you're assessing is with, you know, cozy chats with their line manager on a, you know, kind of periodic basis, might even only be a couple of years. So the answer is it would be, I think you're right, that's a consensus, but it would be great if we actually knew what leaders did and how we would measure what they're producing. Fantastic, Nick. And I'm going to leave it there because uh, I think that's a a wonderful place to finish it off. And uh, thank you for your really (laughs) wonderful... I really, really enjoyed your contributions. Um, Thanks. I liked your joke. I'll tell it. I'll tell you later. (laughs) Really good. Thank you for listening. For more on our guests and the resources described in this podcast, please refer to the information section of your podcast player. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to receive updates and latest episodes of Learning Rewired, brought to you by Headspring.